are attending and being a part of this training. Uh, for those of you who attended the first part of Active Care and Interventions, thank you for showing an ongoing interest to learn more about working with AAPIs, Asian American and Pacific Islanders. What we learned in the first part of this training um, is an extraordinary diverse community. I feel incredibly honored to be a part of this training series and, and a presenter for the AAPI phases of treatment for DMH and UCLA's Public Mental Health Partnership. This is the fourth training in our series, and today we will be examining practices of cultural humility and explore why an understanding of a culturally informed approach is imperative to providing holistic mental health services. We'll also look at some videos demonstrating specific cultural forms of healing and techniques. So hopefully by the end of this training, you'll walk away with a lot of new knowledge. So um, very similar to just how we inform our clients of the therapy process, the more present uh, you can be for this training, the more that you will learn and take with you. Okay, so as a result of today's training, you'll be able to identify at least three interventions to help clients feel understood, respected, and um, both of these components can help uh, to improve positive health outcomes and client satisfaction. As we learn throughout this training series, since mental health is highly stigmatized within the AAPI communities, establishing rapport is needed in order to keep clients engaged and actively involved in their treatment. Furthermore, as a result of today's training, you'll be able to explain at least two elements of cultural humility and what that looks like within the AAPI communities. Lastly, we'll end by developing an understanding of how to conduct a cultural assessment and incorporate cultural forms of healing and practices into different evidence-based interventions to promote healing. I'd like to also encourage participation and sharing among the audience, as many of you have valuable experiences in your work with clients. So please feel free to ask questions throughout the training um, by sending your messages through the chat box and I'll do my best to answer it throughout the training. So to start off today's training, I'd like to begin by going over what not to do. Since many AAPIs have a history of trauma with some even having complex trauma, doing any of the following, can, following items can almost guarantee that you would trigger the amygdala's alarm system which will signal threat and danger. So first, not recognizing experience as trauma. For example, uh, we might say something like, you're being too sensitive, they didn't mean harm. Clearly you must have done something wrong. This is an absolute big no-no and can result in secondary victimization. Another form of not recognizing experience as trauma can be seen when we questions Question our clients, for example, are you sure you didn't give the other person clues that you were okay with the racial jokes? Or if a client says something that you might not like or doesn't align with your way of thinking, questioning their belief systems can undermine and rupture the therapeutic relationship. 
making assumptions based on stereotypes. Since your family stress, for example, the importance of staying calm and resilient, not saying anything seems like it's in your best interest. Or you'll be able to catch up and get your grades up quickly because it's not that hard for you to learn and catch, catch, catch up. Ignoring complexity of culture. This is evident when we don't consider the intersections of race and ethnicity, the different levels of acculturation and assimilation, and basically not recognizing individuals as unique human beings. Prescribing techniques as a cure or a fix. So um, at times it might be really tempting when our clients are helpless to want to rescue our clients but rescuing our clients may reinforce the idea of learned helplessness and not necessarily facilitate long-term changes. For example, um, a cure that we might prescribe to our clients as a fix-it-all might be something like if you stop thinking about things or feeling paranoid about your safety because there is clearly no real danger, you'll be fine. Just tell yourself you're okay. Um, and basically this, in, in doing this, we're not taking the time to understand our clients or to work collaboratively with them. Medical processes that lack the survivor's perspective. Tell me where the pain hurts, um, what happened, but not really taking the time to ask our clients about their feelings and thoughts because of their experiences. Um, not conducting a cultural formulation or considering culture-specific uh, diagnosis, which is doing little to improve the racial cultural skills, is a straight pathway to distrust. Lack of follow-through, example, informing a client that you will coordinate care uh, with your case manager or with their doctor, but not following through or keeping clients updated on the status of linkages or consultations. And then using a one-size-fit-all approach, as we mentioned, not looking at the unique individual, not looking at the individual as a unique person, making assumptions, not taking the time to learn about our clients' individual experiences. So now um, that we covered things not to do, I like to conduct a quick cultural humility quiz. To answer this question, simply think of cultural humility and what that means to you. In which way is a professional who practices cultural humility humble? So, um, First, A is they realize it is important to place biases and judgments at bay when meeting with clients of different cultural backgrounds. B, they are okay with not knowing everything about other cultures. C, they relinquish expertise and power by placing their clients as an expert to their own cultural interests, beliefs, and interests and experiences excuse me, or um, D, all of the answers are correct. Um, you guys are all on the right track to cultural humility because D is the correct answer. So I wanted to, to show this picture. I came across this photo 
And it really stood out to me because it illustrated how words and the way that we communicate can make a difference in either a positive or negative way. For those of you who dialed in and you're not able to see the slide, it is a comic picture of what appears to be a white male next to an Asian female with a word bubble above to the left stating, you're Japanese, you must love sushi. And whereas on the right side, a word bubble with your Japanese, how do you feel about sushi? How many of you in the audience have heard the phrase, stick and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? If you have, simply raise your hand. We have quite a few participants raising your hands. Uh, definitely a childhood rhyme. Well, for me, I remember um, first hearing these words in elementary. And back then, I thought to myself, well, yeah, I suppose words can't break my bones. So I'll just forget the hurtful things that other kids have said and be stronger. As an adult up to this day, I can still remember the hurtful words Although they did not break my bones, it did have a lasting impact on my upbringing and created several experiences of insecurities and doubt. Contrary to the childhood rhyme, words can and do hurt us, capable of doing much more harm than physical stick and stones, having long-term consequences on one's psyche. In our work, thus, as mental health professionals, what we say matters. The way we communicate has a lasting impression on our clients. Clients remember what we say and how we say it. As clinicians and mental health professionals, to work effectively with our clients from AAPI backgrounds, we must not only refrain from making assumptions and stereotypes, but also work on ways to unlearn and combat our biases. I'd like to encourage each of you right now to bring into awareness stereotypes and assumptions, specifically as it relates to AAPIs. Perhaps you've worked with a client who have faced struggles that you never understood because they seem to have it all together, including quote unquote, a supportive family or you have a client who complains about difficulties navigating in the United States and have not fully understood what's making things difficult because they seem to have so much more support and stability than what they had when they lived in a communist country. Simply take this time to start examining and looking beyond your assumptions. So in the CBT world, cognitive behavioral therapy. This means finding information that does not support your biases. For example, all Asians are bad drivers. Asians are successful and don't face racism. Well, in the training series, we've talked quite a, quite a lot about um, the increases of anti-Asian hate incidents since the pandemic. So we know that this definitely is not true. So in summary, our words, actions, and how we communicate makes a difference. 
So on our next slide, we'll be looking at the definition of cultural humility to gain a better understanding of the components of cultural humility. This can be as simple as opening a conversation in a way that genuinely attempts to understand a person's identities related to one's culture. An awareness of the self is central to the notion of cultural humility. Who a person is informs how they will and do see another individual. This also means having a respectful attitude towards individuals of other cultures. Being culturally humble really pushes us to challenge cultural biases and to learn from our clients, acknowledging even that we cannot and do not know everything about every culture. It involves understanding the complexities of identities, even in being grouped as AAPI. Under the um, Asian American umbrella, there are dramatic differences as we've discussed uh, during the first part of this training. Um, being aware of those differences and being curious to learn about the differences to really gain a full understanding of each individual in context. So what might this look like? As an example, in my current role as a program manager for the Cambodian Integrated Services Model that is funded under DMH, the team consists of individuals who do not necessarily share the same religious and spiritual beliefs as our clients. However, the staff members genuinely want to learn from clients and what they define as their cultural identities or what's important to them. So 10 years ago, the program started as a pilot program. And over the years, by continuing to honor and respect our clients' culture and what's important to them, along with DMH's support, we were able to expand mental health services by incorporating spiritual practices and other forms of healing into the Western concept of traditional talk therapy. And later on through this presentation, we'll have an opportunity to look at a documentary that features um, our work. We learned um, basically in, in being culturally humble as a team, we learned about the things that were important to the Cambodian community and what gives them meaning and purpose and really uh, looked at ways to incorporate uh, those aspects into mental health services. And going back to cultural humility, uh, it's really needed to eliminate the health, health disparities, especially those that are perpetuated by discrimination and bias. So in summary, practicing cultural humility entails doing exactly the opposite of the initial slide that would definitely set off the amygdala's alarm system. So let's break down cultural humility further to see how it looks like in practice. First, reflective listening and being other focused. This includes having a non-judgmental presence, meaning following your client's agenda and not your own. For different EBPs, um, such as CBT and motivational interviewing or seeking safety, all of them stress the importance of working collaboratively with your clients to set agendas um, and helping to tie the, the discussion towards helping them to meet their goals. So for example, a client 
um, identifies wanting to talk about recent events, COVID and possibly Omicron and the rapid spread of Omicron, or maybe in using the seeking safety model, going over a specific quote brings about a discussion about uncertainty. Reflecting back statements um, of action, um, actions of worry and providing reflective statements to tie towards a goal of reducing anxiety. So it might look like, it sounds like hearing about Omicron and the rapid spread um, is making you, it's making you feel very uncertain about things and making you worry more than normal. And you're having a hard time because you're feeling overwhelmed about your safety and your family's safety. Does it make sense to talk about ways to dis decrease some of your worries? We're seeking safety specifically, uh, there's a topic about ways to take good care of yourself. Cultural humility also um, involves continuous self-evaluations. So if a client mentions their beliefs, values, or aspects of their cultural identities that doesn't align with your own values or beliefs, being able to acknowledge those differences in beliefs that they exist, but being able to set them aside and shift your focus to your client by asking more questions to understand their point of view. This is an example of cultural opportunity as it gives us an opportunity to explore in more depth about our client's culture and their belief systems. It also involves recognizing um, when there's, there are power imbalances and shifting the power from ourselves as mental health professionals over to um, the client to help them to feel empowered and straighten their belief in their self-efficacy. Empowering um, clients to tap into their motivations using motivational interviewing techniques and really letting them know that they truly are the expert in their own healing. Also involves understanding individuals as unique as we've talked about seeing a person based on their lived experiences and environmental stressors versus the label of a DSM diagnosis of schizophrenia or PTSD. Later uh, in this training, we'll review a memoir that will highlight this. In seeing individuals as unique, it accounts for more intersectionality of all identities of a client. It emphasizes one's individual identity within the collective identity of one's culture. Being culturally humble also requires that we own and acknowledge that we don't have all the answers or know everything, but that we're open and interested in learning. And in order to practice with cultural humility, it involves a lifelong commitment to learning. It's definitely not a destina destination, but a journey. Uh, when practiced, it can lead to cultural comfort, meaning feeling at ease, open, calm, and relaxed with other diverse groups. And this may require the need to explore our own discomfort, thoughts, feelings before, during, and after interactions to develop this level of comfort.
Okay, so on this next slide, um, I'd like for us to do a mindful exercise and encourage you to think of a time when you felt lost or extremely down and you, were, you confided in someone. What qualities did that person have that helped you to feel understood and heard? And um, you can go ahead and put in the chat box the qualities or the characteristics, and um, we will generate a word cloud so that everybody can see what pops up on the screen. So again, it could be a therapist, teacher, friend, or just someone you randomly cross paths with. What was it about their qualities or characteristics? that helped you to feel understood and heard. And while the messages are coming through, I will go ahead and just read what comes through. Active listening, not interjecting. Open-minded and gives good advice. Actually getting what I'm saying. Don't be missing my point. Patience non-judgmental, compassionate, patience to listen, didn't make me feel rushed, patience, validation without immediately trying to solve a problem, validation, just being present and genuinely listening, reliable, compassionate, Calm mind, listen and let it go. Thoughtful, reflective statements that showed they were listening. That person gave me a hug and made me feel that he heard my concerns. They didn't try to solve the problem. Definitely not assuming, asked me instead. They were compassionate and listened rather than imposing their own beliefs onto me. Non-judgmental, active listening again. Awakening mind shows empathy and not giving advice. Patience, present, ability to think about desperate things and putting it together. Dialectic, dialectical truths, for example, reflective listening, show open mind. It's important that they are not, I have always have a hard time pronouncing this word, misogynist or racist. That's great points. All right. Um, wisdom. So lots of great characteristics, qualities, um, examples that were all shared uh, through this mindful exercise. Thank you everyone for participating. Um, and we will um, see if we can put this into a word cloud so we can show it later on during this presentation. So a lot of the things that were shared in terms of the qualities and the characteristics of an individual who really help 
helped you to feel heard or understood. Um, one of the foundations was establishing, being able to establish trust and rapport. So one of the most important aspects as well in therapy is creating a solid foundation of trust and rapport. Let's review approaches and techniques uh, that can help build rapport, specifically as it pertains to working with AAPI folks. First and foremost, a needed prerequisite to setting a strong foundation entails developing a respectful partnership. One, as we mentioned, that involves collaboration, the art of active listening wholeheartedly and being attentive to help our clients to identify their own goals. Um, someone in the chat said, you know, someone who doesn't give me advice, whereas some, uh, another individual said someone who gives me good advice. So um, it, it just depends on that individual and their style. To create positive expectations, expectancy, knowing what clients think their problems are. So sometimes this requires an understanding of cultural syndromes and cultural specific diagnosis, which also includes understanding the ways that a cultural group finds healing, how suffering is communicated, perspective on negative thoughts and emotions. So when we talk about cultural bound syndromes or cultural concepts of distress, um, it really um, covers, you know, what uh, a community or an individual thinks or believes um, might be causing their symptoms of distress. In some different cultures, there might be a specific word. You know, in the first uh, part of this training, we talked about kachal chap, which for Cambodians is literally talking about in a uh, dizziness attack. So at this time, I like to encourage each of you to share cultural bound syndromes or cultural concepts of distress that you're aware of, whether it's something you learned from a client or something that is specific to your own cultural background. And I see a couple messages coming through the chat box. So for cultural bound syndromes, um, I don't think I'm gonna say <laughs> this uh, word right, but it's neurasthenia, which means depression and anxiety unique to Asian population. And hikikomoro, um, in Filipino concept of hiya, which means shame, and machista, which is similar, parallel to Hispanic, Latino concept. Uh, hikikomoro um, means Japanese shut-ins, like agoraphobia. Asian versus version, I'm sorry, Asian versions of machismo. Another uh, participant shared mabika ni loop, which means heaviness on the inside when experiencing distress or depression. And that is unique to the Filipino 
community. So just amongst our participants today, um, you can see the diversity um, of the different cultural bound syndromes. And as we've discussed underneath the AAPI umbrella, there's 50 distinct, um, 50 distinct ethnic groups. And Yutang Ilu, which means being indebted to someone, can usually be abused by relatives and family. So um, lots of things that were shared amongst the attendees and participants about the different cultural syndromes that exist. Thank you so much um, for everyone um, who shared. Uh, the different cultural concepts of distress and what that looks like in your community. So what we've discussed so far covers principles of culturally informed care. Traumatic events often represent a loss or lack of power. Therefore, practicing through a culturally informed lens involves collaboration versus telling or prescribing clients what to do. This leads to empowerment and helping the clients to feel empowered to make changes. The process of healing can be facilitated when patients feel a sense of control over treatment and having a choice. So a good example of this in TFCBT with younger children is a use of a remote control where clients can create their own remote control with a power button, pause, rewind, and even different channels to tune into. The channels can even focus on things that are within their control, something such as their attitude, their behavior, how they choose to speak to themselves and their family members. A key part of resilience and recovery maybe to use local metaphors, analogies, proverbs, and incorporating non-traditional healing practices that promotes resilience in the face of challenges and adversity. And this definitely looks different across the AAPI cultures. In part one of, the, uh, of this training, we looked closely at the role of Japanese cultural values in shaping incarceration resilience and making the best out of negative circumstances. Culture also influences um, compassion, I'm sorry, uh, culturally informed care also includes compassion and dependability, being trustworthy, communicating clear and realistic expectations of treatment process. Um, it means following through when we say we're going to do something and doing it timely. And if we're not able to do it timely, letting our clients know uh, what's holding things back or just giving them an update. Because by doing that, we're showing that we respect them and we value them and, and the relationship that we have with them. It also includes um, cultural humility and responsiveness, which is basically being able to navigate our own self-awareness of our own culture, history, implicit biases to understand clients' needs and unique experiences. 
understanding that impact of trauma and stress and how it can manifest for AAPI folks and helping clients to establish and reestablish safety and stability, which can be accomplished by all of the principles we've discussed thus far. And going back to the previous slide um, on cultural syndromes, um, Chinta is what um, in the Indian culture refers to as worries. Thank you for sharing that. So in our next slide, let's look at um, cultural influences just a little bit more closely because it's gonna tie in the entire presentation and uh, the cultural forms of healing and practices that we'll look at in a little bit. So cultural influences and individuals' values, whether it's religious, spiritual, family, or what the individual values. It also, it also influences practices um, such as blessing or wedding ceremonies, maybe even practices such as honoring our ancestors and uh, different AAPI cultures. That means offering food um, and prayer to save uh, our ancestors from bad karma. Greetings are also another form of uh, cultural practice that is different throughout the different AAPI cultures. Culture also influences beliefs, how culture um, influences views of mental illness, whether culture believes in karma, how mental health problems are expressed among Asian patients. So some good questions to ask um, might be based on your upbringing and cultural background. What does it mean to have a mental illness? What do you think caused the stress or the illness? Additionally, traditions and rituals are influenced by culture, who an individual turned to for help, whether it's a spiritual, local leaders, or um, the church, a pastor, or a priest. So as I was putting the slide together um, and reviewing the cultural influences, I wanted to take a moment just to highlight DMH's innovation grant back in 2012 to provide mental health services using a community-defined integrated services management model. The model looked at ways to improve the quality of services for different underrepresented ethnic populations and AAPIs were identified as one of the underrepresented populations. And really uh, looking at ways to build on the strengths of each, com each community. And what really made the program unique was that it allowed the AAPI communities to identify their own needs and incorporate non-traditional non forms of healing. We um, call it non-traditional, if uh, we're looking at it from the Western perspective, but in terms of looking at it from the AAPI background, it's traditional forms of healing because those are ways that the uh, AAPI communities heal. And looking at how to integrate and incorporate the non-traditional forms of healing to integrate physical health, mental health, substance abuse, 
and other needed care to support the recovery of individuals. And basically doing this uh, looked at providing services through a culturally inclusive lens versus a dominant Western lens. And this is a good segue into the next slide where we'll watch a documentary on um, a healer and psychiatrist, which shows how a traditional healer and psychiatrist treat mental illness in the South Pacific island of Tonga in very challenging and inspirational ways. Right, so all of the qualities that um, makes it possible for that rapport and the trust to be built, um, the bigger the, the words are, uh, means that more responses came through with that same word. So it looks like listening, patience, compassionate, non-judgmental. So these are all things that we strive um, to be in our work as mental health professionals. Okay, so providing culturally sensitive care really looks at ways to have uh, partnerships or ways to involve local or traditional healers as um, we saw in this video. And um, we also need to make sure that that is something that the client consents to, the involvement of traditional or local healers. And we'll look at this um, in more detail later in the training, okay? So to effectively adapt EBPs for a given culture, we know that since AAPIs have very um, different things that they value that might not uh, align with the Western traditional value system, uh, that the adaptations are needed when um, we are working and using the evidence-based practices. So um, this means basically being aware of cultural issues and some of the cultural bound syndromes that we've talked about. Also looking at biopsychosocial spiritual models, matters related to culture to give us a better understanding of cultural views of dysfunctional beliefs and mental illnesses. Having, having an awareness of cultural influences, as we've talked about, can help guide our treatment approach, making it more culturally sensitive. For example, um, many AAPIs believe in a collectivist culture with family members making decisions for the family. This can be misinterpreted and as enmeshed or unhealthy. Uh, for CBT and seeking safety, uh, there's a topic specifically in seeking safety called healthy boundary setting and saying no. Based on cultural assessment and completing a cultural assessment, if we understand that a client values family involvement and decisions um, because it makes them feel happy despite making them feel stressed. If we teach our clients to say no, it might actually be more anxiety provoking for them because it goes against the client's values and their belief systems. 
So instead, we might need to adapt it a little bit more and look at ways to reduce the stress as well as respecting our clients' values by approaching the situation with flexibility. For example, um, if a client was designated to host family gatherings, uh, asking family members to come possibly on a later date or a later time, or even to um, give notice of when they're showing up to the house uh, to allow for preparation and uh, time, which can reduce stress. So looking at ways to uh, make the boundaries more flexible versus more rigid and more black and white. Cultural assessment also involves exploring clients' knowledge and expectations of healthcare system, involvement with any other forms of healing practices, including local healers, and getting clients to buy into therapy. So uh, a lot of the evidence-based practices are very structured. Uh, jumping in with the structure, we might jump too quickly into the structure and might miss a opportunity to engage clients. So taking a step back to, to see what brings a client in for services. And if they're in extreme pain, um, and really having a hard time looking at ways to provide immediate symptom relief and symptom management at the start of therapy can really improve engagement and prevent premature termination. Another example of having of helping clients to see the benefits of therapy involves sharing success stories, how other clients benefit from therapy and uh, even sharing evidence from research. Also involving family members as support systems. So when adapting EVPs to work with AAPIs, we need to be flexible with activities to allow for individual interpretation based on their experiences and culture. So even as simple as something as getting to know our clients, we might need to shift our language from describe which can be very vague to something more specific, such as please tell me about an experience you've had with a counselor, therapist, or a psychiatrist. It could be uh, a good experience or a bad experience, or maybe you have never had an experience and that's okay too. And another point to consider is cultural considerations for translation of uh, therapy words, such as the word reflection um, that may need to be defined from a different angle of compassion versus reflecting back just what you heard. So let's look at um, ways to make CBT culturally adaptive. So we know that CBT focuses on teaching about cognitions, thoughts, feelings, and how they relate to one another. And it also includes behavior activation and experiments. Key elements in CBT that can be modified to make it more culturally adaptive includes mindfulness and meditation, which uh, has roots from Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's basically an act to be intentional 
and focus on the present to allow oneself to take a mental break. Somatic focused emotion regulation techniques, modifications to visualization exercises. So since flexibility is highly valued in AAPI cultures, pairing visualization of a wind-moved lotus to applied stretching and relaxation techniques such as head rotation or asking a client to visualize themselves sharing a moment with a person who makes them feel that peace versus maybe the traditional imagine yourself alone in a quiet place. Modifying catastrophic cognitions. In part one of this training, we discuss how somatic symptoms can lead to trauma memory and catastrophic cognitions. A method to modify cognitions in a culturally adaptive way can be done through interoceptive exposure and positive reassociation to somatic sensations. So basically what this is, is traditional interoceptive exposure, such as hyperventilation to induce dizziness or head rotation to, to induce dizziness combined uh, with creating positive associations to the induced symptom. So what this looks like, for example, among uh, refugees, when doing head rolling or head rotation for exposure to dizziness sensations, we might ask the client to imagine a traditional game that um, they play uh, that creates that same dizziness sensation, but in doing that, it, it links it to a positive association. So that way it can modify the catastrophic conditions. And the next time they experience dizziness, it can be positively associated. A game in the uh, Cambodian, Cambodian community is uh, a childhood game called Let Kasang where um, a person runs around in circles while holding a scarf. So that might be something that if you are working with um, Cambodian refugee clients, you can um, introduce. A large component of a CBT we know focuses on homework assignments. So um, since we know that uh, there's a high importance of mind, body, spiritual balance, among AAPI cultures, homework focuses, homework can focus on stretching, muscle tension awareness, different meditation and mindfulness practices with visualization uh, ad adaptations as we talked about, the lotus flower, or even a leaf going down a stream um, that creates that inner sense of calm, inner, inner sense of balance and peace. So in discussing the uh, adaptations to CBT discussed here, it definitely shares similarities to Taoist cognitive therapy, which has been shown to be effective for um, the Chinese population who experience generalized anxiety disorder. And really it conceptualizes anxiety and worry as a result of rigid attachments to beliefs goals and desires. 
And the emphasis on Taoist principles are very similar to those that we've discussed throughout this training with principles um, on collective benefit, acceptance, humility, flexibility, being in the present in harmony with the laws of nature. So there's a lot of discussion about how important it is uh, for us to conduct a cultural assessment and making sure that we gather that information to fully understand our clients and how best to work with them. But the question might be, you know, for um, some of us who are newer in this field, where do we begin in our attempts to seek to understand an individual's culture? So um, the CFI, which is the Cultural Formulation Interview, was created by the, a a created by the APA in association with the DSM-5 Cross-Cultural Issues Subgroup to help identify unique needs of an individual and enhance patient-clinician communication and to improve outcomes. It was created as a way to collect information on patients' illness experience, social and cultural contexts, help seeking, and treatment expectations, and to make it easier for providers to account for the influence of culture um, in our clinical work. And it consists of 16 questions in four different domains that attempts to understand the definition of the problem, causes, uh, support, ways that uh, individuals cope, and then cultural factors that might affect current help seeking. Okay, so these are some of the sample questions from the cultural assessment questions. Um, and before conducting CFI, I want to highlight that since many AAPI individuals may not have sought therapy before, it's important to be transparent and clear about the purpose of questions and the process of therapy. We also need to make note that sometimes asking so many questions can um, remind our clients of maybe being interrogated if that was part of their past trauma. So this can um, also help to set up positive expectancy if we can be transparent. So one of the questions, what brings you here today? Uh, I think specifically in the CFI guide, it talks about um, what problems bring you here today. And I would just suggest that since problems aren't, um, since mental health and problems are highly stigmatized within the AAPI communities that you just kind of refrained from using that word. So simply saying what brings you here today. And you can make it your own and um, what fits for you. What do you understand is happening? What kind of help have you sought? And really looking at assessing um, cultural uh, practices. What do you, why do you think this is happening? And how would you describe what's happening to your family or friends? And I like to stress that um, in asking our clients questions, we want to just remind them that there's no right or wrong answers. 
And if there's any questions that they're not comfortable with answering, that is okay for them not to answer them. The next series of questions will look at um, the meaning of illness in terms of the client's unique culture. So what are things your culture does to help with what you're experiencing right now? Again, uh, when using the CFI guide, be flexible. Uh, use your own words to make it sound more natural and find a style that fits for you so it doesn't come off as robotic or as a checklist. Also, you want to take into consideration timing if you're using an interpreter or speaking the client's native language. You may not be able to translate word for word. You may need to describe things. So have you ever felt different from others because of your beliefs, ethnicity, race, uh, really looking at um, assessing racial trauma. And then specifically, what are some incorrect assumptions people have made about you or your family? And how did you respond to them? Okay, so next, there's a video that I'd like to show um, that demonstrates the use of CFI. So as I pull that up, I like to encourage you just to provide, uh, think about any feedback you like to provide, whether it's positive or negative, and what you might do differently. So what brings you here today? I've just been kind of confused. I mean, like I've been hearing my abuela's voice and I try to tell people what's going on, like nobody's taking me seriously. Sometimes people have different ways of describing their problem to their friends, their family, and their community. How would you describe your problem to them? Well, I don't really think it's a problem. Just like I hear, like my, I started hearing my abuela's voice. Like she keeps telling me to go to Panama and just start my life over. And I mean, it makes sense, right? But like nobody, people think it's a problem. They're not taking me seriously, and I feel like I cannot trust anyone. You know? What troubles you most about being unable to relate to others? It's just that, I guess really it's just that nobody is helping me, you know? I need help to, to do what I want to do. I need to like restart my life. That's what she's telling me. And, like, nobody's helping me do that. Why do you think this is happening to you? And what do you think is the cause of your inability to relate to others or for their ability to understand you? I mean, I don't know why it's happening to me. I think it's just just my destiny, you know? My grandma is just trying to talk to me somehow. It's a sign that I need to just start over. Like, what I'm doing is not right right now. I guess being in college is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And Nobody else understands that, and I feel like I'm having a really hard time getting help because I can't trust people. And it's like what I already said. I can only trust what my abuela is saying. What do friends, family, and other people in your community think is causing your inability to relate to others? I mean, they just don't understand what's going on. They, like, I tell them that I can hear 
the voice of my grandmother telling me what to do. And they just think I'm crazy. So, I mean, I don't know what else to do. How do I get people to believe me? Are there any kind of stressors that cause your inability to relate to others, like family problems or money? I mean, I guess it was stressful at the beginning when I didn't really know what I was doing. I felt like I was kind of struggling in school, but now I have the answer that I need. My grandmother is telling me what I need to do. And it's just, I guess what's stressing me out now is I need to figure out how to get to Panama, you know, and just start life over. Nobody is helping are there any aspects to your background or your identity that relate to your difficulties to relate to others? I mean, the one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that I'm really close to my family. I mean, I was so close to my grandmother before. Like, she always knew what I was feeling, you know. She could understand me. And I'm really close to my brothers and to just my entire family. And, you know, there aren't many people who understand that. Sometimes people have different ways of dealing with problems, like being unable to relate to others. What have you done to cope with these problems? Um, people were telling me to write, and I've written, like every day I write pages and pages of what I'm thinking, but other than that, not really anything. And I could never show it to anyone, you know, they would just think I was crazy. Often people look for help from different sources, doctors, healers, helpers. In the past, what kinds of treatment, help, advice, or healing have you sought for your stress? I, mean, I don't really know what you're asking. I mean, I asked my family for help, but they didn't. They are just like, go talk to a therapist. I mean, that's what you are, right? So, I, mean, I haven't really done in writing. That's it. I haven't really seen any. Has anything prevented you from getting the help that you need? Yeah, just everyone. I mean, nobody. It's kind of funny, and, and nobody. Well, like, nobody understands what's happening. Like, my grandmother is telling me what I need to do, and I just need to do it. And that's my purpose in life. And people just don't understand. I, mean, I can't trust anybody. I can't tell anybody what she's telling me. I mean, what I really need is for somebody to make sense of what she's telling me. But how, how am I going to find somebody like that? What kinds of help do you think would be most helpful for your inability to relate to others? Um, like I said, I, I need somebody who understands that what is happening to me is real. I'm not making it up. And I guess... I would need somebody to help me interpret what my abuela is saying. You know, she's telling me to just go live in the country in Panama and start anew, and I need to figure out how to do that. And and she's telling me other things that I need to make sense of, and I need help figuring out what she's trying to tell me. Are there other kinds of help that your family, your friends, or others have suggested that would be helpful to you now? I was going out with this one guy before who told me I should come to talk to somebody and that's what my parents told me too. That's what I'm doing now. So, that's it. Sometimes doctors and patients misunderstand each other because they come from different backgrounds or they have different expectations. 
Have you ever been concerned about this, and is there anything that we can do to provide you with the care that you need? Um, I think I already told you everything that you need to know. I mean, it's, it's like I said, people, the people that I try to confide in don't understand me, so I need somebody who can understand me, will take me seriously, and help me to interpret what my abuela is telling me to do. I need help to get to Panama, you know. Alright, so, um, feedback. Any positive or negative feedback? Uh, what would you do differently? You can uh, unmute yourself or send it through the chat box. So uh, shared a very similar feedback in the chat box that he's not reflecting back uh, in terms of what the client's addressing her needs, which is something that we talked about that is so important in the principle of being culturally informed, uh, reflecting back, being non-judgmental. Um, so thank you for sharing that um, feedback. He was dismissive via discursive communication. You know, towards the end, she was saying, well, I guess you're a therapist, right? That's what I'm here. Um, I just need somebody to understand me. And um, that was apparent that he wasn't reflecting back uh, because he wasn't using the reflective statements or the communication was a little dismissive, that there was that disconnect. Right. So... Um, what might you do differently? So the CFI guide uh, was developed to help us as clinicians to better assess the cultural components. What might you do differently from this video? Role play. And I think uh, underlying what you shared is just building that relationship and um, I mentioned validating the client's feelings, exploring client's desires, and um, that wasn't being done. There was not much reflection of statements, um, and even I think in the uh, facial uh, expression of the um, counselor, it was very incongruent. Um, she was sharing um, how she was struggling and he was smiling shared, I would summarize what she's saying to make sure I understood this from her perspective. Yes, all great, great points. Thank you um, for sharing. Putting it into practice, I am mindful on time. We have about 15 minutes, um, but I wanted to go over uh, and do a possible role play, but I'm not sure we're going to have time for that. So if we do, we can come back to this. Okay, so um, in this memoir, memoir, Tastes Like War, I just so happened to um, be driving to pick up one of my sons uh, from their basketball practice and um, tuned into the radio, and uh, it was featuring a NPR a radio clip on a Korean author and her memoir titled Tastes Like War. And this is what she wrote in her, um, uh, based on the inspiration for her book. So the book is motivated by my love for my mother and my desire 
to honor her by trying to understand her history and to really denounce the shame and the stigma that damaged her psyche. And to do the same for other people who might be attached to some label like schizophrenic or sex worker. Uh, in the interview, she shared that she didn't quite understand her mom's condition, uh, but sought to understand uh, by visiting her and asking questions. Um, and in terms of her career path, she chose to be a researcher and study a little bit more, which led her um, to become an author, to really put the missing pieces together. Because when she would try to ask her mom about her her past, her mom would literally pretend like she didn't hear um, her ask that question. Uh, it illustrates beautifully the effects of trauma, environmental stressors, and the impact it had on her mother's mind, body, and spirit. She learned that her mother was likely also involved in sex labor and witnessed horrific things during the Korean War. So she had. Um, lots of different complex uh, trauma. And it wasn't until her mom was in her 40s that she had uh, developed symptoms of schizophrenia. I'm going to share a quick two minute clip of the radio. She heard voices. Um, they had a name at one point, right, Oki? They, yeah, they had a name throughout, throughout Oki. Um, and originally, I thought that that name was a reference to their origin, which was that they had come out of the oak tree in, um, in our front yard, in our house in Chehalis. But then, several years later, I had a colleague and a good friend in graduate school who said, you know, when I told her about my mom's voices being named Oki, she said, oh... That sounds just like Oki, which is an old-fashioned Korean girl's name. And so then it just sort of opened up this whole thought experiment that maybe Oki was a reference to somebody else in my family history. Like maybe it could have been another sister that she didn't talk about, that she lost, or it could have been a child that she had that she relinquished, um, you know, any number of possibilities. And so it sort of became this very mysterious, um, this mysterious name. But for me, I sort of like invested this meaning in it that this was a voice from my family history. And so it sort of changed my relationship to the voices because I used to be afraid of them, you know, when I was younger. Um, because I didn't understand it. And I think that most people who don't have the experience of hearing voices are afraid when they encounter someone who hears voices, you know, because of the way that it is. Right, so hopefully everybody was able um, to hear the clips of the NPR radio interview. And... Um, she heard, so basically her mom heard voices speaking to her. There was a portion of it where um, the voices was saying, um, her, her mom would refer to the voices as Oki. Um, and then she discovered that it had more of giving her information in terms of meaning to her family history. 
So even in asking her mother about whether she knew she was, she had schizophrenia, her mom answered and stated, yes, but I'm not an ordinary person with schizophrenia. So this really challenges us to see PTSD, depression, and other DSM-5 diagnoses, not as chemical or biological imbalances, but as a response to stress, lived experiences, accumulation of social, interpersonal, and even environmental stressors. So as I mentioned, she wasn't diagnosed with schizophrenia until her 40s. And back in the 1980s, she took her mom to a community mental health clinic. And the young counselor that they met told her um, that, that he's sorry, he doesn't think that they could help her. And that was just so heartbreaking to hear um, that that was the, the experience that she had with her mom back in the 80s. Um, when there wasn't as much research on schizophrenia, but as we learned, not even taking the time to understand um, her mom's experiences. The author also found that her mom would go back to herself when she engaged in, in cooking, which was something that she loved so much to do. So the author made uh, a point to visit and cook for her mom. Something about the cooking was nostalgic and brought back healing, uh, which is a good segue into the next slide about culturally sensitive interventions. So learning about our clients and inquiring about their cultural stories, heritage, and history, um, we can use metaphors and analogies when working with them. Uh, we talked about the lotus flower and incorporating that. Another way is when we're explaining about the mental health treatment process, we can refer to an analogy. So for um, a traditional noodle dish, for example, in the Cambodian community, we have a noodle dish called Nambujok, and we can say it includes several steps, making the paste, making noodles and the sauce. And it involves patience, creativity, commitment, and even flexibility. And that each part of therapy is like one step in making the dish. Uh, it requires waiting until the end of therapy to know what has been accomplished. Uh, incorporating cultural practices as a culturally sensitive intervention. So as I spoke about the innovations grant and how lovely it was to receive funding to support non-traditional forms of healing, um, which really helped clients feel that we understood them and we honored their culture and also increase utilization of mental health services. And on our team um, for uh, the blessing ceremonies that we were able to incorporate, uh, we worked with uh, Buddhist monks and on our team, uh, we're also blessed to have a master of ceremonies known as an Acha, um, which you've heard him share some of his experience, Mr. Uh, Rongbi. Um, and he has a really good relationship with the Buddhist temples and helps to coordinate the uh, blessing ceremonies. A AAPIs, um, are more likely to respond to distress uh, through uh, somatic symptoms as we learned. 
So promoting emotional and cognitive flexibility by incorporating muscle relaxation and stretching with self-imagery, with compassionate statements, something such as, as I am, as I become more flexible in my body, may I know how to adjust to new situations. So um, practicing mindfulness meditation as well um, is a very culturally sensitive intervention that promotes compassion, loving kindness to not just ourselves but to others. Uh, it involves learning not to judge self or place blame on self for rumination of negative thoughts. So uh, looking at more cultural practices to decrease distress, um, snapping, uh, which is jointing, uh, snapping the joints to create a joint reflex, coining um, or cupping, which is rubbing of coins or cups on the skin with camphor bombs, also known as tiger bomb, which is an ancient method of treatment that is still widely practiced among Chinese and Southeast Asians. And it's believed to rid the body of heat or negative energies, increasing blood flow. Acupuncture also as a traditional form of traditional Chinese medicine used to alleviate pain, and treat physical, mental, and emotional conditions. Tai Chi, uh, which promotes flexibility um, and being um, in tune with the energy forces with nature. Different forms of massages exist throughout the different AABI uh, cultures to relieve stress and increase energy flow. So there's Thai massage, Khmer massage, even among native Hawaiian massage, um, which combines use of prayer, breath, and energy. Reiki, um, which is a Japanese form of energy healing, using palm healing or hands on healing to transfer a universal energy to encourage emotional or physical healing. So since mental illness is linked to disharmony between mind, body, or imbalance, um, practices uh, that we've discussed that are culturally sensitive to the AAPI communities uh, emphasize mind-body-spirit interventions. So the relaxation and regulated breathing, um, observation of mental activity. Um, there is a specific um, tool that's available um, through different, many different therapist resources. One, for example, is therapist aid which has a mindfulness breathing with uh, a leaf component where the clients are asked to think about the thoughts that they're thinking of and visualize themselves taking that thought out, placing it on the leaf and watching the leaf go down the screen, uh, waiting for the leaf to go further and further until it disappears. Attentional focused. Um, component centering basically on activity um, and mindfulness, being in the present, and then good deed and actions to self and others. On our next slide, uh, we're going to look at the Buddhist blessing ceremony um, by really getting to know our clients and working with clients in the AAPI communities. 
Um, some of the themes that we picked up on was that pain and suffering can be attributed to bad karma. So one's bad action and bad deeds can lead to future sufferings and bad karma. And uh, there was a belief in a higher power, something bigger than themselves. Um, clients valued helping and doing good to others. Uh, and, and they res respect, understanding, and culture are highly valued. So as a result, we incorporated spiritual healing practices, such as a blessing ceremony, to address the barriers to recovery and provide multiple platforms and opportunities for healings. So Asian patients may go to the temple to have a water blessing ceremony to remove bad luck in which the person is sprinkled with holy water and has a blessing string tied to their wrist. And these actions create positive self-imagery of transformation, which is really, really uh, great for our clients to see. Right. Uh, this is a short documentary that I have mentioned that I would share that um, called Spiritual Healing Practices. And I like to just give a shout out to our previous executive director, Mariko Khan, who um, received funding for us to do this documentary and really uh, show our beautiful work. ខ្ញុំមានការសោកនៃតកម្មក្នុងជីវិតដល់ធំអស់ចាងមួយគឺថាសម័យខ្មែរក្រហមធ្វើបាបខ្ញុំខ្លាំងណាស់ខ្ញ
you're trying to find any place to reestablish that. That's why the temple, the church, the mosque, or what have you, is always a place, the first thing that gets established for immigrant communities. And for the Cambodian experience, the same thing. The temple was that place for a lot of our clients because that was one of the ways that tradition was maintained and passed on. What we've really focused on, which is the blessing ceremony and other spiritual um, ceremonies that really help Cambodians, A, to feel that we respect their culture, that we understand their culture and traditions, and that the process of understanding helps them to heal. គឺមានអត្តន័យថាចង់ឲ្យភ្ញៀវ we really thought we would just go to the temple and do a few ceremonies. It would just be easy and we'd do it once or twice and it'd be great. Now it's like a whole facet of our program and it's, it's every three months. It's, it, uh, the thoughtfulness that the staff put into implementing this has amazed me. And it can only happen when your staff is from that culture. I really believe that. Every staff that's working with the program has some type of tie or relation being impacted by the Cambodian genocide, being daughters or sons of parents who went through the killing fields. And some of the staff actually have their own personal experience being survivors of the Cambodian genocide. So we thought if we had people to come together and cook, they could be experts. Because one of the aspects of coming to through the acculturation process is there's this flipping of powers within the family structure. The kids then now who speaks the language, understands the culture in America, are the cultural brokers. So they will speak on behalf of their parents. And ultimately, the parents who traditionally should be in the leadership role of the family are now having to be more of the passive recipient. In the Cambodian culture, if you go to a Cambodian parent's house, the first thing they do is offer you food. By doing that, they're able to feel good about themselves, to give our clients that opportunity to be the lead chef, teach a skill, and give other people food, really help them to feel better about themselves. អឺជាតិក្តីអីហ្នឹងមានរំសបាយចិត្តបានធ្វើ
Now they're starting to get connected to the community. At one point they were just isolated and feeling hopeless and feeling disconnected. Now they're starting to reintegrate back into the community. Then the healing process happens by itself. At that point, later on in the process, the journey of, of healing, we also have skills building. Within our team, we have case managers and specialists that work on rehab. So we will send them to these groups to help them learn how to manage money, learn how to take the bus, link them to ESL classes. They're able to do mindfulness gardening. And with that, just focusing on what they're harvesting allows them to have maybe 30 minutes of being able to just focus on something else besides their worries. We have meditation classes as well for clients who are able to master the art of meditating. They are able to feel more control in terms of how they feel and um, how they interact with other people because there's just so much less stress or anxiety. The, the realm of the spiritual aspect of their identity, their culture is already, there's, there's healing embedded in that culture already. And so the Ink program has allowed me to help clients see, regain that wonder that they've somehow lost or forgotten in, in the midst of all the trauma that they've experienced. <laughs> See how the uh, culturally sensitive interventions were incorporated to really uh, provide uh, space for clients to heal uh, that's aligned with their culture. So I encourage each of you to continue your journey of cultural humility, to engage with a culturally informed approach, take a stance of informed curiosity, and to ask questions in a respectfully culturally sensitive approach, considering all the cultural influences in the intersections, uh, to gain a better understanding of your clients uh, which will really help to tailor your interventions and make it more culturally appropriate and um, help our clients in the path towards healing and recovery. And so feel free to use the chat to share how you can take what you learned today and put it into practice.
So tying in mindfulness, importance of using a framework that is aware of psychosomatic impacts of trauma, reframing, modifying the psychosomatic sensations, and associating those sensations with more positive thoughts. As a takeaway, and to be mindful of the impact of trauma on so many of our communities. Okay, and just in sake of time, thank you everyone for being present uh, with me today. Um, feel free to reach out to me to share feedback, comments, or ask any questions. My information is listed on the slide.